Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a new story about your world. Today's guests are Senior Merchant and Christian Umbria Smith from Generation Progress, a nonpartisan think tank committed to a wide range of issues that matter to young Americans. We'll talk about the problems facing current and former college students who are dealing with the crippling issue of student loan debt. I want to thank all of you following Jesse Garcia's show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about the show, visit jessegarciashow.com. Save the date. Phoenix, Arizona is holding its first ever Latino Pride on Saturday, October 13th at Corona Ranch. They have confirmed musical performances by A.B. Quintanilla with Cumbia All-Stars, Nina Sky, Carlito Olvero, plus special performances by the Latin drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race, Cynthia Lee Fontaine, Jessica Wilde, Calorie Kardashian, and Alexis Mateo. Bam! Tickets are available at lpfaz.com. That's LP. FAZ.com. I want to wish the Latin Pride Alliance, which is holding this event, the best of luck on its inaugural Pride. And here's your weekly news update. Well, it's finally official. Latinx just entered the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary this month. The gender-neutral term has been heavily used by Hispanic millennials to reshape how we think about gender and how we address each other with equality in mind. In a recent article written by Washington Post multimedia reporter and Latina Rachel Hazimpanagos, she talked about the current use of Latinx and how it actually got started a decade ago by LGBT and gender nonconforming people in order to address inclusion. Latinx was birthed by queer internet groups in the early 2000s, which eventually took off to the delight of a new generation of youth who want to challenge the patriarchy and to the frustration of older Latinos who are still trying to spell it and pronounce it. I want to reassure the community that we will come to love and accept this term, as we did with Latino and Latina, Hispanic, Chicano, Chicana, and the many hyphenated descriptions containing mother countries with the word American. Why? Because it's not so important what we call ourselves. We are not a monolithic people. But what is important is how we treat each other. And if Latinx allows a person to feel respected and included, then why not use it? Last year, as a graduating class of 2017 walked across the stage to collect their college diplomas, the average student was handed a student loan bill of nearly $40,000. That's up 6% from the previous year, according to industry experts. Today, more than 44 million student loan borrowers owe a combined $1.48 trillion. That's $600 billion more than the total credit card debt held by Americans. Monthly student loan payments across the nation average around $351. And for 11% of these borrowers, they have fallen behind, with some defaulting on these loans. America is facing a day of reckoning when its workforce will start foregoing purchases like homes in order to make that payment on that student loan that cannot be erased even by bankruptcy. 
Not that many politicians are talking about this crisis, which will one day become a major economic issue when student loans compete with retirement funds. Luckily for student loan holders, millennials are not waiting for an appropriate time to talk about this. They are starting that conversation and Generation Progress is taking charge of the narrative with its higher ed, not debt initiative. As the advocacy arm of the Center for American Progress, Generation Progress works at the national and local level to empower young people through advocacy and research, as well as gives young leaders the platform to advance progressive values. Higher Ed, Not Debt is Generation Progress's multi-year, multi-organization campaign dedicated to tackling the crippling and ever-growing issue of student loan debt in America. I want to welcome to the show Senya Merchant and Christian Umbria from Generation Progress. Uh, they work in the higher ed, not debt team. Um, Senya, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Jesse, thanks for having me. Um, I've been at the Center for American Progress for about three years now. Um, I initially came here to be the assistant to our president here at CAP near Tandon, um, but I moved into the student debt and college affordability space because, as cliche as it sounds, uh, higher education opened up a lot of opportunities for me uh, here in D.C. and my career generally. And how about you, Kristen? So I've been at the Center for American Progress and with the Generation Progress team for, I think it's like two years now. And I came into the space uh, as one of those classic stories where I moved to D.C. with really no job and uh, no apartment and was looking for work. <laughs> and then I ended up getting a call after I applied to uh, the team uh, because I had been one of those who had gone to a community college because I couldn't afford a public four-year. And I kind of had an experience of that, what that was like, and also coming from like the Latino activist world, I knew a little bit about the inequities when it came to higher education access and affordability. So it was kind of a good fit all in all, and I'm really happy to be here. Well, you guys are working in a very important topic to many people, and that is higher education and trying to get keep higher education affordable for all of us. Currently, we have nearly 20 million students attending American colleges and universities. But we're, you know, they're working hard to get their degrees to change their lives like we did. Um, but they're also accumulating a lot of debt. How did higher education become so unaffordable? What happened? I feel like that is the question of the century. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hear it from all these older folks mm -hmm. saying that, oh, it was it was never like this when we were growing mm -hmm. up, or it was free. Some yeah. people actually said it was like state schools were free to go to. Mm -hmm. It was just a continuation of That's absolutely true. high schools. Tell us. Yeah. So I guess I should say when we're talking about higher education, we're actually talking about three pretty different systems uh, that are sort of masquerading as one. So you have your public colleges, your UC Berkeley, Sacramento State College. Um, you have your nonprofit private schools, your Harvards and your Yales, mm -hmm. and then you have publicly traded for-profit colleges. Um, these kinds of schools have been getting a lot of media coverage lately because of scandal in the industry. Uh, but to give you an example, this is like ITT Technical Institute and DeVry yeah. University. Yes. Um, and I make that distinction up top because while it's true that the cost of college has gone up across all of these sectors, um, it's important to recognize that 
some kinds of schools, particularly kinds of schools that have profit motives, um, have a pretty clear financial incentive to raise tuition year after year for no other reason than that is how a company stays profitable, is through revenue growth from tuition. Um, so we've seen a huge explosive rise in student debt coming sort of from that sector. Um, but generally speaking, when we're talking about the kinds of schools that the vast majority of Americans are going to, so public colleges, um, the original sin, as my boss likes to say, yes. uh, was around the time of the recession when states began to pull out funding out from underneath public higher That's education. That's what I was wondering because I remember like when I was going to school and I was a college newspaper, I worked in the college newspaper, so we'd always have to report, oh my God, tuition's going up again, tuition's mm -hmm. going up again, yeah. and we're going to lose Pell Grants. What happened where... We started losing funding for higher education. Yeah, so I'll give you the example of California because that's where I'm from, uh, but this varies state by state. Um, California in 2008 went from spending per student about $15,000, and now it's currently at less than $10,000. And so to make up for that loss in revenue, um, schools started to raise tuition. And the problem is that even though the economy recovered after the financial crisis, um, state spending in higher education never resumed to pre-recession levels. So we had this permanent cost shift going from schools to students and families starting in 2008, 2009 that never really let up. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit about how this affects the Latino population? I mean, well, let's take a look at other things that really affect us on the state level. I mean, the fact that in every state's discretionary budget, higher education is always the first thing to get cut whenever there's any downturn in the economy. And that's that always ends up holding back generations of being able to pursue those opportunities that are increasingly becoming dependent on one holding a higher, higher education degree of some kind, you know, be, that, be that a career certificate or a two-year or four-year degree. And so the thing is that we know in our community very well that education is a very important thing, and we constantly push on us that we need to do well, we need to get that degree to get a good job and to really uplift our families and by, by virtue of that our communities. So it's almost kind of like a trap in a way where like we need to do the one thing that helps us develop. But our state leaders, and especially at the national level as well, are consistently undercutting that mission by undercutting funding. And so the way this affects the community is that we've consistently had to build different resources on our own to overcome you know, affordability barriers, you know, local scholarships, you know, funds, community resource organizations, things like that to help uplift us and overcome those, you know, historical inequalities. But tuition keeps on rising, so that becomes increasingly, you know, less feasible. So what ends up happening is that, like, I like to think that we've, on our own, been able to overcome some of those barriers. And, like, we've seen in the last 10 years that we've increased enrollment in, in college, uh, you know, for high school graduates. Uh, and the Latino community, and degree completion is up like 9% over the last 10 years, which is great. It's still not at parity with whites in a lot of ways because, you know, structural inequality, again, still affects us overall. So the thing is that when you even look at the per-student spending that Lysenia mentioned, across the board, you see that students of color consistently get less and are getting less by virtue of what the spending priorities are. So that affects the community, especially when it comes to those Hispanic serving institutions, where you know, even though they have a large population of Latinos, even then they get funded at a lesser rate than other schools that have predominantly white populations, which is and still outrageous. student loans that are readily available. Right. And even the parents end up getting these student loans, because I went through that. Right. I went through that. Right. And what's weird about it, too, is that, like, that's increasingly becoming a factor for everybody, especially among us, because 
I think it's like 18% of family income go of Latino families goes to pay for you know school tuition, and that's what that's like that's it. Other than that, they have to take out other loans, you know, federal loans if they're citizens, and private loans, and especially for the undocumented community within our Latino community, like they can't get that, those federal loans, so they have to rely on other resources. And you know, heaven forbid they take out a high interest private loan, but you know that's the thing. Like there are increasing demands to adjust and take on debt to afford college when it shouldn't have to be that way. So what is Generation Progress touting as solutions out there? Because, I mean, it's obvious that in order to grow the economy, we need educated people. We need people that are going to be able to work in the 21st century economy with these jobs, especially high-tech STEM fields. So we need to educate this populace, population, but how are we going to be able to access this higher education? Mm-hmm. So um, at Higher Ed Not Debt, we take sort of a three-pronged approach to tackling this issue of student debt and college affordability. And it starts with um, addressing existing debt for current borrowers, because uh, they're current, there's 44 million Americans shouldering about $1.5 trillion. That's with a T. With a T. And that's in almost like debt. 600 billion more than credit card debt. Oh, yeah. It is the second largest category of consumer debt behind mortgages. And millennials, if you're interested in how this affects young people, hold almost half of that $1.5 trillion. So, those are, because they are paying these student loans, they're not going to be able to afford a home. Yeah, it's actually a study came out today, and I encourage listeners to check it out from the Association of Young Americans. They're sort of like the AARP, but for millennials. Uh, They did polling that actually student debt isn't only uh, impacting young people's ability to buy homes, cars, and save for retirement. It's affecting every generation, uh, especially because many parents and seniors have to co-sign on on these loans to take out more and more in order to cover the full cost of attendance, right? There's a cap on how much you can take out from the government. Um, So having more people in your family that can sign for you uh, makes you eligible for more loans. So what are some of the solutions that you're working on? Right. About? So like I was saying, in order to help existing borrowers, the mm-hmm. major problems current borrowers are facing are unaffordable monthly payments um, and issues dealing with their loan servicer. Loan servicers are the companies that collect and manage your payments after you leave school. Um, so we work to make sure that everyone who is eligible for lower monthly payments through things like income-based repayment or public service loan forgiveness know about these options and are recertifying every year to stay in these programs. There's a huge problem with about 60% of people who go into the lower monthly payment plans a year later drop off because they don't recertify. So we do a lot of education on that front. Um, And then for people who are experiencing problems with their loan servicers, we're working really closely with grassroots partners um, and state representatives uh, and senators in order to pass consumer protections for borrowers um, in states across the country. So one interesting thing about student debt, unlike any other form of consumer debt, is it comes with very little protections. Um, So uh, we have about four states in the District of Columbia who provide very basic protections for people with student loans. Um, The second and the third thing that we do is uh, we're working towards meaningful solutions to make college more affordable. So we are big fans of equitable, debt-free, and free college plans. Um, if you go to our website, Higher Ed Not Debt, we're actually tracking every state and local piece of legislation that tackles college affordability, uh, which is fantastic um, because we are certainly not holding our breath for a Republican-controlled Congress to do anything about <laughs> expensive college. Um, and then sort of our last uh, bucket of work is going after the profiteers that are making 
making money off of the student debt crisis. So I'm talking about for-profit colleges and loan servicers. Um, so we sort of cause a lot of ruckus here in Washington, D.C. to make sure the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, knows that um, borrowers are being educated on what she's doing to dismantle protections for cheated students and defrauded borrowers. That just seems like a raw deal. Oh, the, yeah. The, I mean, they're basically were sold like false goods mm -hmm. in some of these, you know, universities, for-profit universities, and they were going to have their debt canceled, and now she's wiping that That's exactly judgment. right. That's exactly right. Hundreds of thousands of people, because their school closed, Corinthian Colleges and ITT Tech, were eligible for full loan relief. Their schools committed fraud like illegal misconduct and they're sort of now hanging in the balance because by virtue of a press release DeVos comes in and she says I'm delaying this rule. We actually had a victory last night in court uh, because one of our partners sued the DeVos Department of Education uh, and the and the judge ruled that her that DeVos's delay of this rule was illegal and so on, find it, on Friday we will find out when the uh, Obama era borrower defense rule will actually go into effect and people will get the relief they deserve. Good luck to those students. Yeah thank you. Now there's stuff that's going on at the state level where they're actually taking their public colleges and making them free because they see a benefit. There's a win-win for the community. I mean, we're already paying tax dollars to keep our elementaries and high schools open for mm -hmm. our public, for our children. What's, how is it different for like a public state school? You know, why is that different at that level? Um, there are some states that are already going that route, Tennessee, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Montana, Minnesota, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Nevada. What do y'all know about what's going on in those states? What made it possible in those states and what's coming on the horizon? Well, I think a lot of what we see there is that I think they're starting to recognize that this is a crisis, as we've been saying for years, which I think it's actually something uh, poetic, the fact that there was a Republican governor who was one of the first ones to pass like a free college plan in Tennessee. And he advocates for it strongly. And like reports that we see from this year is that like even when you expand those programs out to like non-traditional students, older students, you know, people trying to change their careers and get a good credential that way they can, you know, not go into their you know, twilight years in incredible debt and have a good job. You know, we're seeing incredible success in the ability for those people to go out and find better jobs and like have a degree that's not you know, holding them and their whole families back. And we saw that continue in different states where every other state has some version of that. And even at the local level, too, where counties or cities are providing this. I think last year, you know, San Francisco was exploring a free college plan. Um, and we're seeing uh, successes in real time, too, with the nature of this. I think uh, this last week, I think North Carolina, you know, they began their new school year and they were looking at the enrollment rates and they were able to, through the North Carolina Pro Promise Program, reduce the tuition at three of their uh, public colleges, public college campuses down to like $1,000 a year for in-state. And I think it was like, you know, three or 4000 for out-of-state, which is you know, still quite low, and that's per year. And it was interesting because that's low by, by, by several metrics, but what they saw in addition to that was that enrollment was increasing at those schools. And then people who dropped out originally, that number of re-enrollment went up by 60%. And it showed that there is a value to that because once you eliminate those cost barriers, people want to go to college. And it's not a matter of like if they're ready or if like college is right for them. It's like people want to do this, but the cost barrier is always going to be the thing that denies people this, what we argue is a public good, this higher education that, again, like you expressed earlier, like from K through 12 to higher ed, 
it's something that we need and something that enriches and empowers our society. Why is this thing limited only by virtue of how much you can pay into it? And frankly, we already do through, through uh, state dollars and you know tax dollars. This should be something that we should all benefit from. And what we're seeing too is that like there are different models of free college programs that exist in different states. You know, because of the immense interest that exists for it right now, more attention is being paid to how those programs are designed, how well they're serving low-income communities, how well they're serving minority communities, and the debate continues among people who want to make it work, which is great because people aren't trying to undercut the success of the program. And it's good for RNRN too because it's simple to make people understand why this is a good idea. And people who benefit from these programs where they do exist are feeling why this is a good idea. Like they're seeing that in their pocketbooks and in their educational enrichment. And so the biggest question is like, how are we able to reduce the barriers to get that kind of a program for a broader swath of the population to ensure that more people are graduating without incredible student debt? And there are dividends to that too, because when people are less uh, inclined to not go to a public four-year or public two-year because they think it's too expensive and takes too much time, it creates uh, a marketplace, if you will, of students that are looking for options and then as we see with DeVos's love of educational options as she calls them which is essentially empowering for-profit you know you know people you know companies and colleges to take advantage of those populations they fleece them into taking in these like high debt degrees with the promises of good paying jobs that don't cost as much or you know promise them better job opportunities after graduation that turn out to be complete lies but that was only able to really come up at the, with uh, a situation that was exacerbated after the you know recession when people were looking for those options and tuition was unaffordable and for-profit colleges took advantage of them and we see that with the Latino community specifically like they typically because of the high cost of college go to two-year programs and two-year for-profit programs and in the end you know that creates a marketplace for these colleges to make bank off of their you know need to go to college and that shouldn't have to be the case you know nobody should be profiting off of this system and so yeah the free college program works in, in a multitude of ways it's just like how we end up uh designing a comprehensive plan is the real question and so what we do at higher net debt is make sure that those programs you know are beneficial to the broader population and it's a good campaign how what can people do at the local level to bring it to their community to their county to their city to their state what actions can they take yeah uh, aside from like talking to your legislator but is there like a movement that they yeah, can sign up to absolutely so for folks who are interested in doing this uh you don't even have to be like a seasoned advocate you could just be a, a person i would encourage them to check out the college promise program um, i think their website is literally collegepromise.org and they have a toolkit on their website that you can download um in order to work with your local effect uh, local elected leaders um to bring free college to your municipality or your state and we've seen this sort of take over the country um, just average citizens downloading this toolkit and figuring out the ways that they can make this work at a local level um, so again that's college promise campaign are there any other books and literature that folks can like research yeah, sure. Um, I'll add on to what Sunny was saying, too. There are uh, We have some partner organizations that also do that work on different levels. So, like, the College Promise Campaign is a great one to get involved in. There's also Student Action that's doing, like, a nationwide uh, push for the free college plan. It's more of a, nat a national solution for that. And they're going around the country now, like, you know, demanding from different candidates, like, like what 
their promises are going to be for reducing you know student debt and increasing college affordability. There's also um, Student Debt Crisis, which is another organization that does a lot of great work on the ground. Um, but in terms of like information, I mean, the benefit of more people paying attention to this is that there's more to read about it. So if you want to learn more about like the nature of free college programs, the the institution called the Century Foundation has an ongoing series analyzing different programs across the country and comparing their levels of effectiveness and their equity. Um, another uh, group that you should look at is, of course, our blog, which also talks about these programs. You know, always look at higherednotdebt.org. Um, take a look at that. Um, and also, there's a couple of interesting things. Like, there's a book that is around it's called. Um, it's by Dr. Teresa Cotton, I believe. It's on the how her experience as a for-profit recruiter gave her insights into the predatory nature of that institution. There's also the Fail State movie, which is a new documentary by a director named Alex Chebanel. Uh, it's recently, um, oh, sorry, the book is called Lower Lower Ed uh, by Ter Dr. Teresa Cotton. So look that up. Um, the other one uh, is, again, that documentary called Failsafe, which is this great documentary that is produced by uh, Dan Rather, uh, directed by uh, one of our friends, Alex Chevenel. He has given a great dive into the nature of that industry and like its predation on students of low-income status, how people overcome their, their student debt, but also the, the good work that needs to be done still to re you know, help the students who were defrauded. I'll throw one more in there. I yes. just got around to reading this book. I don't know how, but it's called Paying the Price, and it is by a genius woman, Sarah Goldrick Rabb. Uh, she's like one of the only education researchers who have done a deep dive into what it takes to afford college um, and covers everything from food insecurity and housing insecurity experienced by a good majority of today's college students. Definitely recommend. Who are the political candidates? One last question who are talking about this issue passionately that people should pay attention to, you know, as the elections come around, who to support if you're really passionate about this topic. Yeah, so we don't do endorsements. At no Howard endorsements. Yeah. But, um, but, we, <laughs> but we do monitor, though, because, again, it's like, who is talking about this? Because we just make sure that this is in the public discourse. Like you just mentioned the governor, the Republican right. governor mm -hmm. from Tennessee, Tennessee, correct? Yeah. So What was his name, by the way? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> we know it's the Republican. <laughs> yeah. But who else is on the national level that's yeah, taking yeah. on this issue? So at least on the national level, I mean, we know the proposals that have been put out uh, by Senator Bernie Sanders, of course, with his uh, College for All plan. There's also the um, Representative Schatz bill. It's a debt-free college plan. Um, there's also, uh, on our end, on, at the Center for American Progress, we have the uh, Beyond Tuition a report that kind of offers, like, it offers a version of that plan, but also compares different plans and, like, how they apply it to a national free college program. But in terms of, like, uh, other candidates at the local level, uh, we're looking at, you know, different people, and a lot of them are young, as we found out, that are talking about student debt as a crisis issue, talking about tuition as, you know, un rising uncontrollably. And there's a good number of candidates that exist out there, but it's just, it's just funny that a lot of them are, you know, younger than 40, because yeah. who would have thought that a lot of them dealing with debt would talk about student debt, you know? I mean, they came really hard after the wonderful Stacey Abrams that's coming out of Georgia. Mm -hmm. yeah. The one thing that they really slammed her on was the fact that she yes, owed money. That. And yeah. guess what? So does like half of America. Of America. Right. All of her voters. <laughs> and guess yeah. what? And it's 
a lot of student loans that mm -hmm. she had to take as a as a youth. So it's just amazing that they want to attack her. That I'm like, know your base, people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we said that a lot Guess too. Like, also has, holds that debt. Mm -hmm. It's silly to think that that's the reason why they would think she's disqualifiable when that makes her more relatable. I mean, certainly more relatable than any of the people on like on the conservative wing. That's like, oh, they own a lot of jets and like talking about populist issues. But like people who actually have debt, trying to shame them for that debt when the, a lot of us, 44 million of us have student debt. 44 million Americans hold student debt and 11% are delinquent on that debt. Yeah, and even, and even some states that, that rate is higher just mm -hmm. depending on where they are. But, you know, but we see like from Ayanna Presley to, you know, the famous Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, to Mark Camp out of California. Um, and then Stacey Abrams, as you mentioned, like they talk about this kind of stuff because this is the issue. It is an issue over time. Like, it is one of the larger financial crises that's mm -hmm. going to come up. And, like, it is, ironically, as we see it, the way, you know, states are trying to protect their students, student loan borrowers, the way the national government's pushing back on state-level regulations on, you know, for uh, profiteers of student debt, and the nature of the increasing bubble that is gr growing out of this, where more people are unable to afford this debt. It's going to be 2009 again if we don't try to fix this. And that's what we're actively trying to avoid with our efforts, is like not creating another bubble that's going to wreck people's finances for generations. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and educating me and sharing all this knowledge with our listeners. Senya, you want to say something? Oh, no, we're just so glad to be here. Thanks for giving us the chance. Thank you, Senya, and thank you, Christian. Always a pleasure, Jesse.